Today's Bible reading is taken from Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 48, um, the triumphal entry. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he rode along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known, known on this day what will bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus at the temple. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we stand, let's pray. Father, what we've just sung is what we want to do, to stand on your promises. They are the firm rock, the sure ground upon which we may build our lives and even into eternity. And so, Father, on this Palm Sunday, as we hear the crowds cry, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So would you turn our hearts that we too might praise your Son, that he would be our King. We would know the peace that he has won for us, and we might bring you glory in lives transformed by his gospel. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, do please sit down. Uh, translator code is up there. Uh, we'll see if it works this week, and uh, hopefully it will for you. And uh, if you are new to us or visiting this morning, a very warm welcome to you. It's uh, good to uh, have you with us uh, at St. John's today. Uh, according to the poet, it is better to travel hopefully than to arrive. I have to say with my sense of direction, I'm always just enormously grateful when I do arrive uh, at the place that I intended to go, so I'm not quite sure it applies uh, to me. But this morning we find Jesus, uh, as we come to Palm Sunday, uh, we find uh, Jesus on a journey. Uh, we've uh, taken uh, a step out of uh, the series we've just completed, of course, in Amos, and we're coming to Galatians after Easter, uh, and so this week, Palm Sunday, and uh, through uh, Holy Week and uh, into Easter Sunday, uh, we're again looking at the, uh, the events that stand at the heart of our faith. And so uh, we come to Luke 19 uh, with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, uh, and he's not so much traveling, hopefully, as purposefully. Uh, he is about to arrive at the destination where his ministry will be fulfilled. 
He's entering the last phase of preparing for the cross. And the cross was the reason that he came. Uh, Here in Luke 19, uh, we find uh, Jesus arriving on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And if you are listening carefully to the passage as it was being read to you, and if you've closed it up, I do encourage you to open it again. Uh, Luke 19, open your device or even a book with pages. Uh, If you were listening carefully, uh, you will have noticed that there there was no mention of palm branches or palm uh, fronds being waved Uh, That's because only John uh, mentions uh, them, and that's what gives the name to the day. It's a good occasion just to reflect briefly then that, uh, as so often in the Gospels, and indeed uh, with any four eyewitness accounts of a momentous event, uh, truthful witnesses record different elements of what they collectively see. So there's no contradiction here, just different uh, witnesses uh, that collectively build up Uh, the bigger picture for us. But let's come back to Luke's account of Jesus' journey and set it in some context since we've not been in Luke uh, for a little while. Uh, Luke takes told us back in chapter 9 verse 51 as the time approached for him to be taken up to Jerusalem Jesus resolutely set out sorry uh, taken up to heaven Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And in the intervening chapters, uh, there have been repeated references to this journey to Jerusalem. Uh, Just look uh, with me back uh, just before our passage, chapter 18, verse 31. I put it on the screen as well. uh, And we'll see why Jerusalem is the all-important destination and why Jesus is resolute uh, in his determination to be there. Uh, Jesus says in uh, Luke 18, 31, uh, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. So Jesus knows that he must go to Jerusalem because God's ancient word of promise reveals God's present will for him. That he must go and die at the hands of cruel men before rising again in victory. And so this journey continues. 1835, he approaches Jericho. At 19.1, he intends to pass through that city. It isn't the destination. At 19.11, he's coming near Jerusalem. And so by the time we've, if we're reading through Luke's gospel, we get to the passage we're looking at in church this morning. Now, the reader is well aware that Jesus has a settled agenda. He is on a dedicated journey to his death in Jerusalem. And so when we read at the start of our passage, at 1928, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. We know that this is not just the next stop on his preaching tour of Judea. He's not traveling aimlessly. The meaning is not in the journey but in the destination, in all that he will achieve in Jerusalem. So with these things in mind, uh, therefore, what do we learn about Jesus as he arrives on the outskirts of Jerusalem, on the verge of fulfilling his mission? How does he prepare us for all that he is about to fulfill? What we see in these verses really are three snapshots. Uh, First of Jesus uh, as the determined Lord 
Again, that note that's been repeating, uh, that he is in sovereign control of these events. He's no victim of circumstance. Second, the Palm Sunday drama itself reveals Jesus as the unmistakable king on public view, the peacemaking, God-given ruler of all. And third, and perhaps least considered, at least attractive in our modern understanding, is Jesus the weeping judge warning us that rejecting him will lead to our being destroyed by God. So let's uh, listen to God's word together, standing on this firm foundation as we look to Jesus, the one who is uh, the sovereign Lord, the unmistakable king, and the weeping judge, that we too may prepare for the cross. That is, we too may prepare to receive all that God has given us in his son through the cross and the resurrection may be willing ourselves to go on our journeys to testify to him and to live for his glory. First then, Jesus, the determined Lord. Uh, this is in that first section, verse 29 to 34. Jesus here in absolute control of the events that will lead to his death and resurrection. Uh, it is a curious little story uh, for all its familiarity uh, to many of us who've probably heard it from many Palm Sundays uh, through the years. As Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany, three or four miles from Jerusalem, he sent two of his disciples ahead, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. We don't know what the village was. Was it one of the ones he's just mentioned or something else? We don't know. It doesn't matter. Either way, Jesus tells them that in the village they will find a colt tied up, a baby donkey tied up, which no one has ever ridden. They're to untie it and to bring it to Jesus. And Uh, The familiarity of the story may make us uh, think that that was normal behavior. It really wasn't. It wouldn't have been any more normal uh, for someone to go and do that than it would be today uh, for someone to come up, even now while we're in church, and just decide that they quite like the look of your car, and so they're going to drive it away, uh, and you go out to find an empty parking space. Don't spend the rest of the service worrying about that. It's a very safe place, Hartford, if you're only visiting here uh, today. But that's the equivalent, you see. It really is quite odd, and and perhaps even with a hint of being fairly antisocial. More than that, though, Jesus anticipated that his two disciples would be asked quite reasonably by the owners of the donkey, why are you untying it? One can perhaps imagine the tone of voice that might have accompanied those words, uh, the uh, people not realizing, humanly speaking at least, uh, that they were part of a broader divine plan. Uh, They were to reply, he said, the Lord needs it. Whereupon the owners would simply release the animal. I wonder if uh, that would be your reaction to a complete stranger asking you for your car keys. It would only happen, wouldn't it, if there was some pretty serious divine prompting that that was in fact the right thing to do. A reaction of the donkey's owners is another clear sign of another hand at work. A hand behind the scenes, a narrative that is unfolding with absolute determination down to the smallest detail. I'll now see verse 32. Uh, Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. They find the unridden colt tied up. They have the conversation. They bring the animal to Jesus. Now the point of this little story is that nothing in Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, none of the horrific events uh, that he's just said will take place, in the coming days, is by chance. 
Jesus is in absolute control of all that is about to unfold. And so when we come to the scheming and cruel and wicked men who eventually nail Jesus to the cross, we cannot think that Jesus has been naively caught up in his enemy's trap. It isn't that God in his innocence has been outwitted by the devil in his cunning Far from it, Uh, just as the Lord planned in fine detail for a cult to be ready for his use in entering Jerusalem, uh, so he has planned to arrive in Jerusalem in order purposefully to give his life for his people. Four days from this point, Maundy Thursday at the Last Supper, uh, Jesus gives the bread and wine to his disciples. Uh, This is what he will say uh, in a few days on that occasion, uh, the night before his crucifixion, as he explains under the symbolism, symbols of the bread and wine, what that will mean for them. He took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem? Why did Jesus go there to die? He went there in order to pour out his uh, blood and to give his body as the basis of a new covenant. That is a new agreement between humanity and our creator. A new agreement, a new relationship uh, that would be sealed in his death and that we would be a part of as we receive this Jesus who has died and risen and put our trust in him. Jesus has gone to Jerusalem. Jesus is determined to go to the cross in order that he might come to forgive our sins and rescue us from that condemnation that we so richly deserve in the hands of a holy God. That's why he came, to seek and to save those who were lost to God in their sins. That's what he said to Zacchaeus when he came to his house a little earlier in the story. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. I remember the story Jesus told in this gospel about the prodigal son, the one who was wasted everything, defied his father, gone and made a mess of his own life. Well, now as Jesus comes to the cross, we see how it is that the father welcomes his prodigals home. He's paid the price for their rebellion. His son has come and made a new covenant between us. And our God. That's why uh, this journey is so important, and why we have this little account to show us Jesus' absolute control over even the smallest detail of what leads up to us. It's here to teach us that nothing will thwart his plan to give us a new start. Nothing will get in the way of his determination to pay the price in full and for eternity of all that separates us from God that we may now be welcomed home on the basis of what that bread and wine point to. His broken body means our salvation and his resurrection means the price is truly paid and there is hope ahead of us. Come back next Sunday and we shall celebrate the resurrection together and think on its meaning for us. But this is how we come home to our Father, through the absolute determination of Jesus to establish a new covenant in Jerusalem as he dies for us on the cross. Nothing will stop him doing that. 
And friends, although it's beyond the scope of this passage, we may say in confidence, nothing will stop him fulfilling that purpose in the lives of all those who've come to put their trust in him. Those in whom he has begun a good work, he will carry it on to completion and the day of Christ Jesus, says the Apostle Paul. And we see that resolute determination in every individual work of God in the human soul, just as we see it here in that which makes that work possible as he comes to the cross to bear our sins. Jesus is uh, the determined Lord, determined to save us. Second, Jesus is the unmistakable king, verses 35 to 40. This is the meaning of uh, Palm Sunday. Jesus is, on public view, the God-given peacemaking ruler of all humanity. It's made explicit in both Matthew's and John's accounts of Jesus uh, coming into Jerusalem on the cult, but the choice of that animal in this context was an unambiguous fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. As he looks ahead to the Messiah, uh, the Lord gave this message to the prophet uh, Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And hundreds of years later, that promise is kept as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the king on a colt. The Jews of the first century are aware of these promises. They're looking for their Messiah. And the prophet told them that when the promised great king came to Jerusalem, bringing God's salvation, he would come in riding on a colt. And in itself, that is curious, isn't it? Great kings ride on sleek war horses. Doubtless, when Charles comes to his coronation, he won't go down the mall on a baby donkey. That would not be a good look for a king. Think of those great uh, portraits of Henry VIII, a vast behemoth of a king. Uh, Imagine he'd he'd squash the poor thing, wouldn't he, if he put him on a colt at the fold of a donkey. That great kings ride on war horses. They don't come into town on a baby donkey. And yet, and it's one of those uh, notes that shows the complexity of the Messiah uh, that uh, God's people in the first century just weren't ready for. When God's Messiah comes, uh, he will come, yes, as a king, but not like a worldly king. He will come not with the trappings of power, but he will come in gentleness and humility, and yet he truly will be the king, a king whose authority is greater than that of any human sovereign. Prophecy continues with that expanding horizon. Uh, He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Don't be misled by the humble appearance of the king. He really is the sovereign Lord. Uh, He will be king over the earth. God will place him uh, over the whole planet, over every person, every creature, the whole cosmos indeed. He will be king of kings. And Lord of Lords. And yet, as that donkey symbolizes for us, unlike human rulers with vast authority, his power will not corrupt him. Now, he will be the king who proclaims peace. That is a peace, uh, as we will discover uh, as the story of uh, Luke continues and that new covenant is made, uh, a peace that he makes and liberally shares with his subjects. 
Even more extraordinarily, this king brings peace by the sacrifice of his own life, not by the slaughtering of his enemies. He makes peace with his own blood. Unlike so many tyrants, this is not a king who will build his empire on the blood of others. And so the shouts of praise that come from this broad band of the disciples uh, hold these truths together. A first uh, quote from Psalm 118, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Here is the promised ruler. They see it and they say it and everyone hears. A second, peace in heaven and glory in the highest takes us to the king's mission to make peace between God in heaven and sinners here. And I wonder if you hear those words and think, I've heard something like that before, maybe a few months ago, back at Christmas. Well, that's because you did. And Luke is deliberately here, drawing our attention to that by uh, the similar sentiments of the angels. Back in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And so when Jesus was born, the birth of the king of all the world, Well, the angels knew that this would be a king who brought glory to God by making peace between us and our maker. And as the story has been unveiled, we come to the point where that is about to be achieved. With hindsight, then we can see that even from his birth, this was the purpose of God. Indeed, from what Jesus says and what Luke teaches us, we know it's not just from his birth, but from all eternity past Uh, that God has intended his son to do this peacemaking work to bring us back to our maker. But the disciples don't get it yet. Uh, At least they don't get all of it. Uh, They do see enough to react appropriately. Uh, Notice it's they who put Jesus on the cult, verse 35, as it were enthroning him, visibly fulfilling the ancient prophecy. They spread their cloaks on the road uh, because that's what you do for a great one. We don't do it here, but when I was curate in Cheadle, we had a a red carpet that we rolled out for the bride on her arrival for her wedding day because she was the great one for a few hours. I still maintain the spirit of that when I'm talking to a wedding couple. I always say to them, while looking at the man, the only person that counts on the wedding day is the bride and her happiness, and he needs to get in line with that. Uh, and uh, normally he smiles wryly, Uh, we know what's going on but the point is you see that there's only space for one to be glorified on the wedding day it's the bride but here, here as Jesus comes into Jerusalem it's the king the palm uh, leaves uh, are laid, uh, the cloaks are laid out uh, rather in front of him he's put on the colt, he's the great one he's the king who has come to reign at verse 37 the whole crowd begins to join in Uh, praising uh, God for the miracles that authenticated the Messiah. Although at this stage, probably most of them had little understanding of the real purpose of his coming. We don't know how many of this crowd that praised him would within a few days be a part of that other crowd that cried out, crucify him. There's a striking contrast in just a space of a few days between this surging and singing crowd that recognize his kingship and the sinister one that will bay for his blood for how fickle are our hearts you see they wanted a king who would change things now 
What they really wanted was not peace with heaven through the blood of a crucified Messiah, but peace in Israel through the blood of massacred Romans, uh, a victory that a longed-for warrior Messiah would deliver. They really wanted a king uh, like David, one to come and lead their armies and bring them worldly uh, restoration. And they were about to be massively disappointed. And that disappointment uh, would be manipulated by their corrupt leaders into a bloodthirsty rage. But they spoke better than they understood. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Unlike this crowd, we know the whole story. And if you don't, we'd love to share it with you. Uh, If you're here for the first time perhaps, or you're not a Christian and you don't really know what's going on, come and chat to me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you and uh, work through a gospel with you that you might hear this story. But most of us know the story. And yet the temptation uh, to want Jesus to be the kind of Messiah who serves my earthly needs is very real for all of us. Have we understood who he really is and why he came and that the most desperate need I have uh, is to be forgiven, to be reconciled to my maker? Because that is what he, the king, came to do. And as we trust him, as we yield our lives to him, uh, whether he brings us uh, blessing and good tidings in this life, and when he does, we thank him for them, or whether it's a season of suffering and trial, it doesn't negate his kingship. It doesn't lessen what he came to do for us, to bring us peace with God, acceptance on the basis of his shed blood. Receiving this king for who he really is. Well, that is God's calling to us. He's sat there on public view. And yet the real response that matters is not with the words we use outwardly, but what goes on in the secret place in our own heart. We really humble ourselves before him, receive the work that he did at the cross and yield our lives to him. Whatever he chooses to make of them in this world before we come home. The coming of Jesus puts every person to the test, compels every one of us to a decision. And as we shall see in this third section, the question really is one of life and death, one of heaven and hell, because Jesus is the weeping judge, verses 39 to 44. The reality Jesus warns here is that rejection of this peacemaking king will lead to our eternal destruction by God. First note of opposition comes in verse 39. The Pharisees in the crowd do understand the significance of Jesus on the cult. They've taught Zechariah 9. Uh, they know what this symbolism means. And they realize, perhaps, uh, that an appeal to the crowd will have little effect uh, because they don't want Jesus to be this king. And so they say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Uh, in other words, surely you can't really be indicating what the symbolism of you being on a cult seems to say very clearly. And of course, Jesus knows exactly what it symbolizes because that's precisely who he is. And so, as the king who comes in the name of the Lord, who knows his authority, is so peerless, uh, he insists that even if those created in the image of God were to reject God's Messiah, the inanimate creation itself would cry out to shame those who suppressed it. It's not the answer the Pharisees were looking for, uh, let's be clear on that. 
And as he approaches Jerusalem, Jesus knows that the Pharisees are more typical of those he will find than the crowd of his currently enthusiastic disciples. Jesus, according to the Gospels, only records, is only recorded as weeping on two occasions. At the other, one is in John chapter 11 at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And he seems to be weeping there both for human grief, Lazarus was his friend, and in divine outrage at the way that death has come and defaced the beautiful creation that he had made for us to enjoy. But here he weeps at the deepest tragedy that brings death and judgment and alienation into the world. He weeps at sin. He weeps at the sustained and hardened rebellion against God and against his word and against his son that is evident even here in the heartland of God's own historic people. And just as a parent watches in agony as their child makes a foolish decision, I know some of you have that experience, so Jesus here with a gut-wrenching cry mourns the city of God turning away from the Son of God because he knows what they will inherit as a result of their rejection of the mercy that he brings them. As he approached Jerusalem, verse 41, and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had known this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You see the tragic contrast? Verse 38, the disciples are singing peace in heaven. That's what Jesus came to bring for those who will receive him. But Jesus knows that the bulk of his own people will turn away. They're not interested in peace with heaven that he's come to bring. And for them, as a nation, uh, their opportunity for national repentance will shortly pass. The Messiah has been publicly revealed But the hardness of their hearts is confirmed by God closing their eyes. Judgment is now inevitable. The opportunity to receive peace was limited and now it has passed. Friends, if I just pause for a moment and just draw back. uh, What is the Lord saying to us here in our nation? The historic denominations on their current rates of decline will all cease to exist in the next few decades. The Church of England may last another 30, 35 years on its current rate of decline into oblivion. If you go around North Africa, a place where there were once hundreds of bishoprics and thousands, tens upon thousands of Christians in the early church, you find now barely a handful hiding in secret places. What God did to Jerusalem in 70 AD and what God has done in history to the North African church or the Arabian church and other places too, he is perfectly capable of doing to the English church so that your grandchildren will not know a Christian and be in a place where there is no church. Do you realize that's the trajectory we're on in this land in these days? I say it to you uh, not to generate histrionics, but to generate repentance and prayer and tears, friends, for this nation that has known so many gospel blessings, but that is on the verge of eternal oblivion in the presence of God. God's done it before. God can do it again. May God in mercy not do it to our nation in our own lifetime. Let's heed the warning here 
and heed its seriousness, both individually and as a nation. This is what happened to Jerusalem. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They did not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Those words, as I say, fulfilled very literally uh, in about 70 AD as the Roman army crushed a Jewish rebellion and raised earthly Jerusalem to the ground. Never again to be the center of God's people and purposes. But it stands for us here in scripture as an urgent warning. An urgent warning that Jesus brings to us with tears. And our confidence, friends, is only in the patience of God. As Jesus' apostle Peter uh, puts it, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Are you putting off the day of repentance, thinking that you'll probably wake up tomorrow morning or perhaps when you retire or there's more time or whatever? None of us knows that tomorrow is coming. Now is the time of salvation. Uh, Today is the day. When we need to receive the patient mercy of God and turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. Or that day will come as our hearts will harden and eternity will bring a loss, the like of which we cannot even begin to comprehend, so awful will it be. And that collective loss, well friends, let's weep for our nation. Let's share the gospel. Let's praise God for his patience and ask him to give us the words, the words of the king of peace, that others may come to put their trust in him for themselves. I remember quite by chance once coming across an old grave in a neglected churchyard. It was the tomb of a teenage soldier who died in the Napoleonic Wars over 200 years ago. And the epitaph, as always, remained with me. He was 19 or 20 years old, I think, when he died. And these words had been put on his tomb. Young men, I pray, repent in time. God called me hence, just in my prime. Now is the day of salvation. Today is the day for repentance and faith. Because Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's made peace. There's a new covenant And we may enter it simply as we turn from uh, being sovereign of our own lives and humble ourselves before him, receive the forgiveness he's won for us. Do it now. Do it today. Refresh it if it's grown cold. And as we do that, then let's go from here, uh, knowing that the only hope for our nation is us bringing this message to those who are in darkness. Let's pray. Blessed is the King. It comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Lord Jesus, help us to echo those words in faith, understanding what they mean, abandoning ourselves to your sure mercy, trusting in your goodness to us to the end of the age, and to proclaim them with urgency to a dying world whose time of visitation is rapidly expiring. Amen.